I got my timing a little off. <laughs> Come back to the 11, I'll nail it. <laughs> hey, good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Pat Collins, and I am one of the elders here. Uh, I'm one of the lay elders, so you don't get to see me very often. I would preach once every year, year and a half, two years, or whenever Nate makes me. <laughs> Even so, I'm very excited to dive into the Word with you guys this morning. Uh, we have a lot of text to cover, and really feel like the Holy Spirit's going to move. Uh, this is a really wild text. It's not a normal way that the Bible is structured or how, the God work, or how God normally works in the New Testament. Um, so I'm just really excited. So let me pray for us, and then we'll, we'll, have, we'll get into it. Oh, Lord, thank you for this morning. Uh, most of all, thank you for your word. God, it is just an honor to be, to be able to share it with people. Uh, it's really, really special. I pray that, uh, pray that I don't take that lightly. I pray that you speak through, these, through me this morning. Uh, pray everybody's ears are ready to hear and wide open. And Lord, most of all, I pray that your Holy Spirit moves. I pray that hearts are changed. And I, people, I pray that people see how great you really are. Amen. So we're picking up in Esther, right where Johnny left off, but I want to give you a quick recap of Esther if you're new this week. Um, so Esther opens up with the king, king Ahasuerus having a massive party. They'd hold these massive parties to essentially glorify themselves and show how great Persia was. Um, in that massive party, his queen was, he summoned his queen, Queen Vashti, and she refused to come. Her punishment for that was she was banished, and she was never allowed to approach the king again. Chapter 2, we see that the king needed a new queen now. So he held a, I'm going to call it a beauty pageant. That's what Nate and Johnny have called it in the last prior weeks, but that's the very much PG term, to find a new queen. Esther was eventually chosen the queen. And Esther's cousin, that was also her legal guardian at the time, told her to keep her identity as a Jew hidden. She was a Jew in a Persian land, so that was very dangerous. The next chapter introduced Haman. Haman is the only clear bad guy in the story. Um, Haman is introduced, he's a powerful leader of Persia, uh, he demands everybody to bow to him, and everybody does except for Mordecai. And this enrages Haman. And he eventually convinces the king to not just murder, or to murder all the Jews. So he wants, to murder, he wants to murder Mordecai, and he wants to murder all Mordecai's people, all the Jewish people. So that's kind of where we are. We left off last week, Johnny in chapter 4, and Esther had just finished three days of fasting. So she had commanded all Jews in Susa and herself to fast because she was, gonna, she was preparing to go to the king and ask him to reverse this decree, to murder God's chosen people. So let's pick, the, that's where we are. <laughs> very quick, very short. I did not do that justice, but it's a good setup for where we are today. So I'm going to start reading in chapter 5, verse 1. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters. 
while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in the land. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter, and the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you, even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom. It shall be fulfilled. Then Esther asked, My wish and my request is, if I have found favor in the, king, in the sight of the king, and if it please the king, to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king king has said. So we open in chapter one, they've just been fasting for three days. And the first verse we see is that she put on her royal robes and went to the inner court. This is really tense. I know it's just where we're picking up today, but it is a very tense moment. A queen doesn't just approach a king unwillingly. We already saw what happened to, to Vashti. You either get murdered or you get banished if the, queen doesn't, if the king doesn't accept you. Feel the weight of that. Like, you don't just do that. She, was, she felt the call, she prayed through it, and she went. She had no idea how it was going to turn out. She didn't know if she was going to live or die. Remember, this king is fickle. Women are disposable in their culture. It's awful, but it was true. Um, all of these things just really increase the weight of verse 1 and really increase the weight all throughout chapter 5. In verse 2, we do see that the king did extend his golden scepter and, and Esther was accepted. But I really want you to see how Esther's fasting led to her faithfulness. She didn't just, she didn't just walk in. She prepared. Um, because there was an opportunity. God doesn't put opportunities in our lives just so we consider doing them. He puts the opportunities in our lives for you to be obedient. Have you ever been in a situation where you were nervous, unsure of the outcome, terrified, but you knew you were called? And you just made an excuse or you reasoned with God you just swept under the rug, and hopefully God, hopefully God didn't see that. And you just do what you want to do. Maybe it's safe. Be like Esther. Pray. Fast. And, and move. Move forward. I did this like five minutes ago. <laughs> like, the fact that I'm up here is because of Esther. Um, take action. The Christian life is not easy. It's not guaranteed to be easy. We believe that a perfect God sent a son, like became a man, lived a perfect life, died for us on our behalf and rose from the dead so that we may, be, we may have eternal life. It sounds crazy, but it's true. I just want to encourage you this morning to find peace in that, find freedom in that, because your salvation isn't up to you. It's because of what Jesus did for you. And because of that, you get to spend eternity with your Father in heaven. So Esther acted, but she didn't act flippantly. 
Take a look in chapter four, or in verse four. She says that, if it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. The feast was already prepared. She didn't know if she was gonna live or die, but she had already prepared the feast. Her plan was in motion. She had faith that God would provide for her and protect her. This was a huge ask. I can't undersell how big of an ask this was. She was essentially asking the king to reverse an irreversible law. Once the king of Persia makes a decree, it cannot be undone. It was also going to cost the king a lot of money. Haman had offered to pay the king 10,000 talents of silver in exchange for murdering the people that Haman chose. He didn't actually say the Jews. We'll get to that later. That was more than half the annual income of the entire Persian Empire. And the Persian Empire was essentially all the known world except for Greece at this time. She would also give up her identity as a Jew. There was a decree that was gonna, all Jews were going to be murdered in 11 months. You wouldn't want to walk into the king and admit you're a Jew. Just, it's suicide. So the tension keeps increasing throughout the story. We're just getting started. I'm going to pick it up in verse 9. And Haman went out that day, joyful and glad in heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and, he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther let no one but me come with the king to the feast that she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all, the, all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. So a good point leading into this, actually in verse 8, is why didn't Esther have the second party? That's a, that was a big question I had when I was reading this, like, she had the king, she had him drunk, she had him happy, she was the queen. Why didn't she just ask after the first party? Um, scholars say a couple different things about this. Uh, number one, maybe she just got nervous. Maybe she just didn't feel that was right and she just wanted to kick the can down the road. Maybe, just have another party, maybe I'll ask him tomorrow. There's also another opinion, which I'm more in line with, that she was continuing to be strategic. Uh, the king hadn't called on her for 30 days. She didn't know what was going on. Uh, maybe she was building more rapport between the king and Haman. I want to point out one difference, or one small but really important notion, uh, in the difference between the invitations. On the first invitation, Esther invited just the king. The, king was, the party was for the king, and Haman was invited. And the second invitation, the king, 
the party was for Haman and the king. So she elevated Haman to the, to the level of the king. This is exactly what Haman would want to feed his ego. And that's what we just read about <laughs> from verse 9 to 14. So at this point in the story, what I just read, sorry for bouncing around a minute, uh, Haman is the second most powerful man in the world. He can literally have anything that he wants. But Mordecai not honoring him is eating away at him. He's a guy who can have anything. And the only thing that he can think about is Mordecai not bowing to him. Everybody else in the whole city is bowing to him, worshiping him, because the king said so. And, but he can't get over it. He gets so enraged that he has a gallows 50 cubits high or 75 feet built to murder Mordecai. It's unbelievable. At this point in the story, as I was doing research and studying, I really, on the surface, I had a hard time identifying with Haman. I thought, well, yeah, I get angry, but I don't have gallows built. <laughs> like, come on, like, at least I'm not that guy. But when you take a look at it, what kept sticking out to me is that Haman just wanted one more thing to be satisfied. Like, he just wanted the thing that he couldn't get. And that's us. And Haman did what we do in our culture. You go and get it. Like, whether it's a house, a job, a relationship, food, drink, sex, like, we just go get it. We're not in a place where we have to be without. And that's what Haman did. This isn't necessarily sin, but it's tricky because we manipulate the truth and reveal just enough to put us in a position to get what we want. And that's where it's dangerous, and that's what Haman's doing, and that is sin. Like, that is a lie. And this only gets more and more pronounced in chapter 6. I'm going to pick up reading in chapter 6. This is where things get wild. And on that night, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. And the king said, who's in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, what should be done to honor the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought to the king, or brought, which the king has worn, and the horse which the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set, and let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. <laughs> I know you're laughing. Leave out, leave out nothing that you have mentioned. 
So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried in the house, mourning, and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to them. Then the wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall as of Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Let that sink in. Chapter 6 is where God becomes the main character of Esther. Up until now, there's been whispers of God, whispers of God's providence, but the unseen character just became seen. Good thing Esther requested that second party. That that second party provided the space and time for God to accomplish his purpose. If Esther asked her request at the first party, the king would never have had a sleepless night. The first few verses of chapter 6 are amazing to me. It's where we really see God's providence on display. Call them the series of coincidences, coincidences, end quote. But it's really God's providence, protecting and moving his people forward. In verse 1, the king couldn't sleep. This seems like a non-event in any other story. It's just a sleepless night. But it wasn't. A lot of people say in Esther that God's name is never mentioned, but actually in the Greek, the Greek texts say that the Lord took sleep from the king. It doesn't say the king could not sleep. It's very specific about that. So what we're seeing is the entire course of history of the Jewish people was changed because a drunk pagan king couldn't sleep. Like, that's how God's working in this story. Also in chapter 1, why did he order the book of memorable deeds? The book of memorable deeds is essentially a Persian history book. So everything the king did, he had people following him around, documenting it. So it was, would document all the battles won, all the great things he did for his people, massive document how beautiful the buildings were, and just, it's essentially a book to worship himself. That's probably why he wanted to read it, or listen to it when he went to sleep. Um, but remember, these are on scrolls. And at the time, the king had been, he'd been the king for a little over 12 years going to be a lot of scrolls. How did the one scroll get picked where it was documenting that Mordecai saved the king's life? Also, that event happened over five years ago. So how did Mordecai not be honored? Like That was mentioned in chapter, chapter two, and it was just kind of a whiff and forgotten about, and now the author's bringing it back up. It was five years, and the king never honored Mordecai. The king was normally really diligent in honoring people who praised him, protected him, because it was self-serving. If he showed that he would reward and make life amazing for somebody that would protect him, more people would protect him, and more people would worship him, and that's what the king wanted. And finally, in verse 5, the timing of Haman's arrival at the court. It just blows your mind. He walks in the moment that King has the revelation about Mordecai. It's just, it's beyond irony, and it's so obvious God working. Um, And God's working to deliver his people through really ordinary means. 
And I think that's why Esther's special. There's no split sea, there's no manna falling from heaven, there's no angel shutting the, lo- the jaws of a lion, and there's no people walking in and out of a fiery furnace. It's just ordinary, broken people making ordinary decisions. It's us. God's doing significant work through seemingly insignificant events in our lives. Another thing of note in the first few uh, verses of chapter 6 is that contrasted to how it's structured with most stories that we tell today, think of a Disney movie. There's a moment, there's the conflict where the good guy's going against the bad guy, and that's the shift in the story. That's the turning point. But that's not how the author wrote this story. The, the climax of this story is actually in the next section. It'll be in next week's sermon when Esther actually confronts Haman. But that's not the turning point of the story. The turning point of the story is actually the king not sleeping. So why would the author make the turning point in the story a, non, a non-event? If the turning point was when, when Esther confronted Haman and the good defeated the bad, we'd be tempted to worship Esther. And that's not the point of the story. The point is to worship God and to see God moving. God is always the main character of this story. And he uses this book to shine a light on how great he is and how dark our sin is. So speaking of our sin, let's talk more about Haman. In verse 6, it's one of the most incredible verses. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, Whom should the king be done to the man who the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? This is another time you can look at Haman and be like, obtuse. (laughs) Come on, man. But this is us. Haman is so prideful that he can't imagine the king talking about anything, anybody else but him. It It didn't even cross his mind. Remember back to chapter 3, Haman hates Mordecai like, with a passion. He hates him so much, he wants to kill him and his entire people. He offers this idea to the king and explains to the people, but he never actually names the Jewish people when he asks the king. I want to read it. Uh, this is chapter 3, verse 8 through 11. This is Haman's ask to the king to take out the Jewish people. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersing among the peoples in all the provinces in your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who charge of the king's business and they have put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from the hand and gave it from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamad, Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, "The money is given to you, the people also, to do with it, to do with it as it seems good to you." Haman never mentioned the Jews. He was sneaky. He manipulates the king into giving him complete authority by taking a signet ring without ever even naming the Jewish people. 
Only does he have this signet ring till he names the people in the decree. Haman was a master and manipulator, and he controlled the truth. He would only reveal enough truth to get what he wanted. Haman's pride blinded him. God was working incredible things to save his people right in front of Haman's eyes. Contrast Esther and Haman for a moment. Esther worked through faith. She saw God's providence. She moved forward in fasting and prayer. Haman only seeks his own glorification. He's his own idol. And this opposes God's providence. Without Christ's saving work in our lives, we're Haman. Without Christ, we have nothing here to live for. It's the ultimate redemption. God came to earth, lived for us, died for us, so that we may have eternal life. Now contrast Haman and Mordecai. Do you know how much Haman, you know how much Haman hates Mordecai? Mordecai is outside the gate sitting in sackcloths weeping because his people are going to be exterminated in a couple months. Haman had just built a gallows 75 feet high. Mordecai probably sees it. It's not like it's inconspicuous. It's 75-foot gallows. And then he sees Haman walking towards him. What do you think he's thinking? He's probably terrified. The last thing he is thinking is that Haman is going to parade him around the city in royal robes on a royal horse proclaiming his greatness. Two Two chapters ago, Haman was... In the, or Mordecai was in the streets in sackcloth, just weeping, and he's still there. He never even left. In this entire book, Haman was seeking to be honored over and over and over again. When we seek to be honored, rather than giving, give glory to the Lord, we should not be surprised when God grants us humility. At some point, we just need to believe it and live it. It's painful, but it's true. This is all over the Bible. We see it over and over and over again. In James 4, verse 6, God says, God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. In verse 10, he says, Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. In Romans, Paul tells us to love one another deeply as brothers and sisters, outdo one another in showing honor. He does not say seeking honor. In seeking honor, Haman found humiliation. And things are about to get a lot worse for Haman. In verse 13 of chapter 6, And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. See how different that is than what they were talking about in chapter 5? One chapter ago, they were telling him to build a gallows and murder the guy. Now they're saying, you're going to be crushed. They see God at work. Persians see God at work. It doesn't happen. Like, that's amazing. Even his friends are seeing it. Up until then, they've only seen Jews as people who need judgment. Now they acknowledge the sovereignty of the Lord. They see it. 
They say it. Their eyes are open. The Jews are a marked people. Their God's covenant, God's covenant relationship with his people is exposed to Haman's friends and family right in front of our eyes. It's really a treat to watch. Take that knowledge and zoom out to the overall, overall arc of the entire Bible. The Jews are God's chosen people whom he entered into a covenant relationship with. Their line weaves in and out of the Bible all through the Old Testament and ultimately ends with the ultimate king, King Jesus. God has already started to change the king's heart even before the king even knew it. Without knowing, the king signed a decree to murder the entire Jewish lineage and end that whole line. But then God provided a reason to publicly honor a Jew. God's working, God's softening his hearts, God's softening our hearts. We see this over and over and over again. Mordecai's reversal of fate is one of the most incredible stories in the Bible. He had a death sentence. God reversed his fortune through a series of ordinary events, ultimately saving and elevating him and striking down Haman. Haman marched in the royal court while Mordecai was in sackcloth. Haman gets dressed in ro- or Mordecai gets dressed in royal robes and paraded around the city, goes, goes back to the king in royal robes, and Haman goes home with his head covered. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. Mordecai's reversal is a picture of the reversal that we had in Christ. We sinned. We broke the covenant. God is just, and because God is just, we all deserve death. Then through no human act, Jesus swooped in and flipped the script, just like Mordecai's was. He came to earth by ordinary means, lived a perfect life, died on our behalf, resurrected so that we may have eternal life. We were literally brought from death to life. Ephesians 2 said we were dead, but God, being rich in mercy, made us alive together in Christ. Our sorrow was turned to joy, just like Mordecai's. The book of Esther shows that you can trust the Lord even when you have no clue what the Lord is doing. The world the way it is today, political divide, nobody agrees about anything. It seems like there's no hope. But look at Mordecai. What was Mordecai hoping in? Did he have hope? He's sitting on the streets in sackcloth. And then the guy who was going to murder him comes, dresses him in royal robes, and parades him around the city. That's you guys. Like, that's you in front of the Lord. Like, that's why the cross is important. That's why we're here. You are set apart. Christian, you are set apart. You've been marked as the adopted child of God. He's making provisions and protections for you. God is faithful, faithful to us and is using us to accomplish his purposes. This morning as we close, I just want to encourage you to own that. Feel that. Feel the weight of that. Let that sink in. And go out from this place and walk in faith. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time. And thank you for this family. God, we really are Mordecai. (laughs) And we did nothing to deserve it. So God, we give you all the praise, all the glory. Help us to walk out of here in faith with a confidence and boldness that we didn't come in with.
God, I pray that your Holy Spirit changes our hearts. I pray that we become more like you every single day until you come again. So God, thank you for this time, and we love you. Amen.